Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to uh, talk tonight about an aspect of right effort that I find particularly uplifting. Sometimes if you hear the term right effort, the response is, oh no, am I going to do enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? Well, you can let go of that in this talk. I want to um, first uh, share with you the actual definition of the term right effort according to the Buddha. There's four aspects of it. Um, One is guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. What does that mean? That means um, don't put yourself in temptation's way. One way to think of it. Don't um, be around people who might uh, lead you to do unskillful things or, uh, as best as possible, uh, get you into a reactive mode. If you can help it, you can't really help it so much in, in your life. But don't be watchful not to. Um, put yourself in situations that will be eliciting unwholesome states. <clears throat> Guard the sense doors is, is a phrase that's sometimes used. <clears throat> Second aspect, abandon wholesome state, unwholesome states. Don't abandon wholesome states. <laughs> we need all that we can get. <clears throat> abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. That means if you're filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, do what you can to uh, not be at their mercy and to diminish them. And what we're doing here, a big part of the practice, is that as we see an unwholesome state, if we see fear, for instance, and by wholesome and unwholesome is meant states that lead to suffering or lead to uh, happiness. And so if you see a state that's disturbing and and troublesome, through the the practice of mindfulness, you recognize that state, you open up to it, accept it as it is, you explore it and understand it so it's not confusing you, and you see that it's not yours. You see, you don't have to take ownership of it. And as we process those different emotions and disturbing states, we see that we, uh, we don't have to be at their mercy. And more and more, they lose their power over us. So that's another way to abandon, that's one way to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. <clears throat> There's others, but I'll just... Um, leave it at that for now. 
And then the two other aspects of right effort are develop wholesome states that have not yet arisen and increase wholesome states that have arisen. Developing wholesome states that have, uh, that have not yet arisen as we're cultivating, as we have the intention to be mindful, mindfulness becomes stronger. As we have an intention to develop loving-kindness, we start planting those seeds and they, they sprout in their own time. You can incline the mind towards all the, um, all the wholesome states and, and practice them consciously. And the last, increasing wholesome states that have arisen when you are in the middle of a really um, noble uh, and um, um, uplifting mind state, that it's skillful to keep, to develop it and strengthen it and give it energy so it becomes more and more a place that you can return to. The practice, um, often as we pay attention, the first things that we see are all the unwholesome stuff that we want to, that we've been distracting ourselves from. So you sit here and there's confusion and there's frustration and there's resistance the first day or two and there's sluggishness and there's doubt and all of those things. And you see how busy the mind gets and how seemingly out of control it gets. And, and then you hear these talks about suffering, there's suffering in life, and the first noble truth is suffering, and uh, after a while, some minds can, with that input, incline towards just looking for and finding suffering everywhere. And the more you, um, you look for it, probably the more you'll find it if you're looking for it in yourself. If you look for confusion, you'll probably find a whole lot of it. <clears throat> well, it's good to keep in mind that those other two aspects of right effort are a very essential part of the process. That it's not just focusing on suffering and on unwholesome states. It is the the conscious development of wholesome states that we are also doing here. <clears throat> Sometimes we can get attached to our suffering because it's so familiar. You know, I remember when I was in, uh, in college and uh, <clears throat> I like to think of myself as a really deep person, which meant I'm really screwed up, you know. That was the, that felt like I was being complex, you know. Oh, I'm more screwed up than anyone. I'm really deep, you know. Oh, they're just a happy person, so they must be kind of shallow, you know. And it kind of could wear it as a badge, you know. 
And sometimes we get familiar with seeing all our, our faults and, and kind of, and that becomes home, even. You come maybe to a retreat or you start experiencing some calm or joy in, in your life and it's, it's kind of foreign and you're wondering, you know, what is this? What, what am I feeling? Oh, this is happiness. And it might take a little practice to get used to. Sometimes people get a little bit unnerved when they feel real joy if they haven't been used to it. I remember seeing, um, there was this uh, painting by uh, a friend of, uh, of mine, Michelle Cassou, who, who teaches this uh, wonderful process called the painting experience. And she was showing this uh, series of paintings that she had, she had done. Um, on death, and this one painting, she had, she was looking at her own process of, of dying, and uh, and she had already died, and there was this painting where she was under the ground and in her coffin, and her body was was rotting, and maggots and worms and everything were eating it up, and there was this shaft from the from the coffin up through the the ground, up through the sky, and up to this uh, Buddha realm, lots of Buddha faces up in the sky. And she said, it was really interesting, I'll never forget it. She said, you know, as I painted that and I was down there in the coffin, I knew all I had to do was just decide to come up out of the, the shaft, uh, out of the ground and through the coffin and uh, up into the Buddha realm. But it was so comfortable down there in the coffin, you know. <laughs> it was warm and it was, you know, home and it would take a lot of effort to to leave, you know, and it was it was really poignant because sometimes that's what we do. It's we're kind of comfortable with our familiar home of um, of dukkha, and then when you find yourself in the middle of a wholesome state, you think, oh, that must be a fluke, you know. <laughs> How did I get here? You know? It's really. Um, important and um, powerful to understand how the seeds of karma work to keep on cultivating what we incline the mind towards. We can have thoughts that are coming through randomly, but if we buy into them and take that on as an identity, as those thoughts manifest as uh, as words and actions, they become more and more, um, the, the power of the karma is, is much stronger. Whereas if we can feel wholesome states and actually um, act on them, give them energy through words and actions, and feel the goodness of them, then the, the development of them is, is quite, um, quite natural. The way I... Um, I like to think of it, not th- like to think of it, the way it works. As, you, as you're in the middle of an action, you are cultivating karma on four different levels. Say you're in the middle of an action and you're, it's an unskillful action. Right? In that moment, it feels kind of yucky, right? The energy that 
comes back to you if you're if it's an interactive encounter will be probably not so positive as you blast somebody and let them have it oh thank they don't usually thank you for your feedback and go on the likelihood of a similar situation eliciting a similar response is greater because you're practicing that response and when you think back on something unskillful that you've done it doesn't feel so good right now the reverse planting and cultivating wholesome seeds just think of this think of some good act some wise or um, um, kind act that you've done recently sometime in the last few months okay think of something all right get something in your mind got it could even be opening up a door for somebody if you can't think of anything besides that okay in the moment that you're doing the the skillful act how did it feel probably felt pretty good the energy that comes back to you you know probably that person feels a certain way towards you and uh, wants to be kind back to you the likelihood of that response being elicited in a similar situation is stronger because you've practiced that you've planted that seed and when you think back on it when you just thought back on it now didn't it feel good so every little act counts you're planting either seeds of suffering or seeds of happiness every single act counts I want to particularly focus on this developing and increasing wholesome states <clears throat> either that haven't yet arisen or that uh, that have arisen <clears throat> the interesting thing about it is sometimes we we feel a little bit shy to let ourselves feel the goodness of it you know suppose that you're uh, you're doing something that's very generous and somebody says, oh, thank you, you know, that w- I, I so appreciate it. You know, you ever get that, that response, either yourself or somebody else says, oh, no, 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 it wasn't really anything, you know, you shouldn't really thank me. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thanked somebody and, and they say, no, 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 stop it. And you're just kind of like, oh, but I want to thank them. Well, the Buddha said actually to acknowledge and let yourself feel the goodness of that state and there's this one this one line in the Majjhima Nikaya I really like um, he's talking about different equipments of mind and he says around generosity is one example that he uses he says thinking I am generous one gains delight in the heart one gains inspiration in the Dharma one gladdens the heart as you're thinking, oh, I'm generous. This is a, um, an act, a moment of generosity. Now, when I first read that, read that, I thought, oh, wait, gosh, you know, it's so easy to get conceited in that. 
But he's not talking about saying, I'm pretty cool. In a moment, it can turn to conceit if you take ownership of the experience. But if instead you simply feel the wholesomeness of that feeling as it's moving through you, oh, how good it feels to be generous. He says, this is a very skillful thing to do. You see the difference? Any skillful act can be a a source of joy by taking delight in the wholesomeness of it without taking ownership. And there's a number of different wholesome factors. You know, I think there's 17 wholesome factors that you can... uh, you can choose from lots of different things. Kindness, compassion, uh, generosity, many, many different things that we do that arise spontaneously. He says, notice them, really be there for them. Different factors of enlightenment, um, joy when it's here, concentration when it's here, equanimity when it's here, calm when it's here. When you're sitting and you're really feeling calm, mm, there's a balance between saying, oh, this is so, so cool and gosh, I'm so glad that this has happened. You can just simply feel, oh, how good it feels to be calm. So it becomes more and more a place that you're familiar with, and you can feel that, that, that goodness of it. <clears throat> I want to particularly focus tonight on four wholesome states that we consciously can cultivate through practice besides mindfulness. And those are the four qualities uh, called the Brahma Viharas or divine abodes. Um, We've been doing a little bit of loving-kindness each day, metta practice, and that's the first of these divine abodes. I wanted to explore a bit of that one and the the other three as well, just so both you recognize them and you can consciously call and uh, evoke them. So, Loving-kindness practice. By the way, all of these four are called the um, um, illimitables. They are without distinction. They are boundless qualities. And sometimes, you know, it can be a little bit confusing when you're doing uh, the metta practice after having done the, the straight vipassana or mindfulness where it seems like you're, you're seeing through that sense of self, and then you do loving-kindness practice, and you're sending kind thoughts to yourself, or to a dear friend, or to a benefactor, and singling out certain people when you then hear a talk in the evening about anatta, no separation, and, and uh, you know, the, the selfless nature of, of existence. And the thing is that they're both true. And that 
the practice is, it starts out with focusing on different categories, but as you practice developing loving kindness towards self and benefactor, etc., etc., you start to see that you are like everybody else and the distinctions start to um, dissolve when you have the loving kindness towards all beings. And today we do what? So, um, difficult person in neutral. Or was it was it all beings today? It was. So you did all beings today. Okay. <clears throat> so it starts out with a focus on particular categories, but you start to see that there's no distinction at all. Here's a a passage that uh, I really like uh, from, uh, perhaps some of you heard, from Martha Graham, the great um, choreographer, to Agnes de Mille, kind of looking at this this paradox of um, separate self and uh, something beyond our individual selves. She says, there is a vitality a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. And that's kind of what uh, the same idea is when the Buddha said, ah, thinking I'm generous, one gains delight and gains inspiration. You can open up to the particular unique gifts that life has expressed itself through you without taking ownership because they're simply gifts that, have, that are um, manifesting in this form. And there's the honoring of the uniqueness that you share, the particular expression that life has through you. Here's a, a more... Uh, Buddhist way of of saying it. This is from Nyoshal Kempo. He says, uh, it's a great Tibetan teacher, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. It is neither improved by remaining in nirvana nor degenerated by straying into samsara. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect, unobscured, quiescent, and unchanging. Its expressions are myriad. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment 
other than by recognizing Buddha nature and achieving stability in that, which implies authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being and training in that incisive recognition through simply sustaining its continuity without alteration or fabrication. So we want to identify this purity, this Buddha nature, right within ourselves. And as we can really connect with it and see that's who we really are, then that can shine through. And then as we more are more and more familiar with it right within ourselves, we can start to notice it in everyone else. Because we're not looking to everybody else to validate us, say, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Once you really get that you are more than okay, you are perfect, then you can start to notice that in others as well. And it's a great gift that we can give to others. That's why in the uh, in the loving-kindness, it starts out with self, which is often the hardest one, isn't it? The hardest one to, to contact for many people. So when we do the, when I do this category, I'll particularly focus on, on self. <clears throat> it is a bodhisattva act to be able to identify and truly connect with loving-kindness for yourself. It's a gift that you give to everyone else. And you know, it's probably mentioned here as we did the loving-kindness, I, I wasn't here for, uh, for the, uh, the guided instructions. The Buddha's saying, you can look the whole world over and not find anyone more worthy of loving-kindness than yourself. It's obvious once you see from the perspective that you're no less a part of the whole than anyone. Why should you have any less deserving, of, be any less deserving of loving kindness than anyone? I remember it was mentioned the other day about the Dalai Lama and, and unworthiness. It seems that he's had this that that uh, difficulty off and on because I was at. Uh, a course in 1979 at, uh, at IMS. It was a three-month course, and he came to that uh, meditation course at the end of the retreat, near the end of the retreat. It was great, you know, the Dalai Lama coming after you've been sitting for, you know, two, two and a half months. And somebody asked him about unworthiness. And he had the same difficulty, the translator, back and forth, you know, he didn't quite get it. You know, and then finally he got it, and he looked at the person and said very firmly, "You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong." Can you imagine the Dalai Lama, the Bodhisattva of compassion, saying, "You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong." He said it with a lot of of kindness, but it was really clear. You know, basically then he went on to say, what makes you think that everything else is part of the universe and has a right to be here and you're different? 
But we get confused by that. We, we experience what Albert Einstein calls an optical delusion of consciousness. Somehow when we're in our own body, we don't quite get it. Now, let, let me ask you, I've sometimes said this before, suppose you met somebody who had your taste, your sense of humor, really got your jokes, your take on life, right? Who really understood you deeply, really got who you are. How would you feel about meeting someone like that? I'd be ecstatic. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Somebody who actually gets it, right? If you met yourself and he or she was standing outside of your body, they'd be your best friend. You'd be calling them up, you know, hey, you want to go for lunch? Gee, it's so nice hanging out with you, you know. But somehow when they're inside your body, it's a whole different story. Ooh, this is just a misperception. So to cultivate those thoughts of, of loving kindness is very, very powerful. In fact, here's the different benefits of, of loving kindness, <clears throat> lest you need to be convinced more. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, which has all these Brahma Viharas. Eleven advantages of loving kindness. You will sleep easily. It's true, isn't it? When your heart is, is filled with love. You will wake easily. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. Devas, celestial beings, and animals will love you. And that's obvious to see if you've ever been around, you know, animals, dogs, and cats, they can pick up your vibe. Devas will protect you. That's a good one to have. External dangers, poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. Don't go checking that one out. (laughs) That's what it said. Your face will be radiant, and that's true. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused and you will be reborn in happy realms. That's pretty good incentive, isn't it? <laughs> Loving kindness towards yourself. Here's a, a beautiful poem from Galway Cannell, who uh, Carol mentioned the other day. <clears throat> the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Basically, that's what we're doing. We're just reteaching ourselves, reminding ourselves who we really are. One way to do that is to tune into our goodness. This is a, 
um, often a, um, a preliminary for doing the loving kindness, reflecting on some noble qualities that you have, that you really appreciate. Just think for a moment, what about yourself do you really appreciate? You know, just go inside for a moment. You might as well do this. You know, and we'll make this a bit of an experiential talk. What do you appreciate about yourself? Maybe these last few days or in your life, your kindness or your diligence or your sincerity of intention. Just let yourself feel like the Buddha's words on feeling the generosity and letting yourself be delighted by that. Just reflect on the noble quality that you can get in touch with and let yourself enjoy it. Mm, Wow. How wonderful. Okay, and then with that reflection, we send some thoughts of loving kindness to ourselves. Now, I want to just share with you a, a variation if you have difficulty getting in touch with uh, loving kindness towards yourself that I've found very helpful. Sometimes it's not so easy to see ourselves while we're in the inside, like I said a little while ago, but perhaps seeing ourselves from the outside is a different story. So I'd like you to think of somebody who you have a a really warm connection with, not a complicated relationship, but just one that there's real love between you. And bring them into your field. Just imagine they're, they're right in front of you. You can feel that special energy that you share. And then imagine that you're Consciousness can move from your body through space and inhabit their body and just get a sense of what it's like to be them and look out through their eyes and see who they see, who this neat person is that they really love hanging out with. See if you can get it for just a moment who it is that they see. You can't hide from them. And now, just imagine consciousness moving back from their body through space and back into your body, this body, and let yourself still feel that wholesomeness, the essence of that person who they they see, and just send some thoughts of kindness towards yourself. When you do the loving kindness or all of these Brahma Viharas, it's helpful to have a phrase, an image, and if a feeling is evoked, fine, stay with that. So, as you send the words, to yourself, just imagine splashing yourself like a blessing with the words. May I have real happiness in my life. And if you can, see yourself in a moment of happiness. 
may I have real peace inside. See yourself in a peaceful state. Just wish that for yourself. May I feel the love that's inside and express it well. Again, if you can have an image of yourself in a very loving moment. Whatever your experience is, is okay. It's more the intention that counts. And let yourself feel that well-wishing. That's what loving-kindness is. Just that heart that wishes well. Even if you can't quite access it as strongly as you'd like, just that basic well-wishing. Now you might, just as a just to complete the exercise in case you weren't able to connect with it on your, within yourself, have that person in front of you and send them some thoughts of kindness. Mm, may you be really happy. <coughs> and imagine them happy and splashing the words like a blessing towards them. May you have real peace. May you feel my love for you. And just feel what that's like to send them thoughts of kindness and well-wishing. You can open your eyes if you'd like. Now, it's important when you do these kinds of practices to um, let go of the report card and the agenda because you don't always feel it. Sometimes people get bored or they fall asleep or they feel really cold. I remember one, one meta retreat, I just you know felt like stone and I thought, oh my goodness, what a, an unloving person I am. It's a purification process. So whatever your experience is, if you feel a bit cold, have metta for that. It's more planting that seed of intention that, that counts. And the more you can develop it within yourself, particularly towards yourself, then the more others can, can feel that energy. And it's, it's contagious. You know, there's, that's how it works when you're around somebody who is feeling good about themselves, not conceited, but just comfortable within themselves. It lets you be comfortable. It's in a different, it's a whole different experience than if they're, they're anxious or, or fearful. So to feel comfortable and really enjoy being you, what a great gift. Mayor Baba says that 
Uh, love can't be coerced, but those who don't have it catch it from those who do. Now really, it's not that they're catching it from the outside, it's just awakening it inside of them. So, this is the, the first one, loving-kindness. Actually, I mentioned one more piece uh, on it and then, then go to the, uh, to the others. A key in doing this practice, both in the formal meditation and in your life, is to keep tuning into what's good, like you tuned into your positive quality. The more you look for it, the more you'll find it. And the same is true when you're around others. So I just will offer you one of my main practices that, uh, that um, is well worth spending time doing, and that is from Neem Karoli Baba, who was my, one of my main, as I mentioned the other night, one of my main inspirations, the um, old guru, old man from uh, Ramdas's books, Be Here Now, and others. He said, keep on tuning into what's good in people and in life. The line, one, one of his main lines, the best form to worship God is every form. Okay. But he said, keep on tuning into what's good. When you see what's good, that's what you will draw out of them. And it's true, isn't it? If you are in a room and somebody comes in and they see all your flaws, how do you feel? flawed, don't you? If somebody else comes into a room and they might see your, might know your flaws, but they see your beauty and you know that they're tuning right into that, how do you feel? Beautiful, don't you? We have a lot of power in what we draw out of people just by looking for it. So as you start to look, you not only see it, but it's like you awaken it and pull it out of somebody else, and then they can feel it for themselves. That's one of the reasons that people love being around the Dalai Lama. You know, he sees everybody as a Buddha. Right? I remember once doing, a, the, uh, doing the intensive practice and doing it for the difficult person, you know, and I just was really having a hard time with this uh, you know, getting up love for this, this person, you know, okay, may you be happy. Oh, God. <laughs> may you be filled with peace. <laughs> and then I, I had this image of this person in a receiving line with the Dalai Lama, you know, and one by one, each person was, was giving the, uh, a scarf to the Dalai Lama and he was putting it on over them and bumping heads in Tibetan style. And I saw this person come up and I just imagined what it would be like to be the Dalai Lama for a moment and seeing this person, seeing, oh, there's a Buddha inside. Mm. And in a moment, it was really right there. That's who we all are inside. We just get confused. So, as you're doing the loving-kindness, it's a great practice. Keep on tuning into the good. <clears throat> the second of the Brahma-viharas is that of compassion, karuna. 
Okay? The quivering of the heart in response to suffering. So it's loving kindness, but it's an open heart and there's suffering that you can open up to and not be afraid to, um, to touch. The near enemy of, each of these have near enemies, the near enemy of compassion, what looks like compassion, is pity because the heart is a bit closed and afraid to touch that suffering. The near enemy, by the way, of love, what looks like love but is very different, is attachment. There's a kind of grasping and it's painful, but real love is, is joyful. <coughs> Compassion is simply that capacity to care. And it's a, it's a great mystery, that capacity that we have that really cares. You know, I think it was uh, Schopenhauer, the philosopher, who uh, wrote about how it is that people will risk their lives to save someone that they don't even necessarily know. Because there's something in us when we, don't, when we don't have time to stop and think and decide that just has to move in response to suffering, even at the risk of our own life. Just being present is often one of the greatest acts of compassion we can have. When we are filled, when we have pity or we're afraid to touch that suffering, we want to fix it because it might be a little bit too hard to touch. But that's not real compassion. Compassion is simply being there for someone. You know, if you're having a tough time and somebody who really cares about you is saying, oh gosh, I feel so bad, and oh, what can we do to make it better, and oh, oh gosh, it's really, oh, I feel awful. That doesn't help you, does it? <laughs> but if somebody is there that says, wow, that's really hard, and I'm really here for you, particularly if they know what it's like, that's where the healing is, not feeling so alone. I came across this story of this... Um, this, there was a contest. This is in a chicken soup for the soul. There was a contest for the most caring person. And the winner was this four-year-old boy who, um, whose neighbor uh, was uh, an old man whose wife had recently died. And he was, he was really bereft. Um, and uh, the, the, the story is being told by his, his mother who said that this boy uh, was, they were outside in front of their house and, they, and the boy saw the, the neighbor sobbing and crying on his porch across the way and he went over to, um, to the old man and uh, was there for a while. The mother couldn't, say, couldn't hear what was going on. The boy just sat down with the old man and after a while uh, the sobbing stopped and he was quite calm and then he, he came back. And the mother said, what did you say to him? And the four-year-old boy said, oh, I didn't say anything. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. That's a lot of what true compassion is, to just be there with somebody and not need to fix it. And you can develop it. You can cultivate it in a moment we can change if our heart seems 
closed. In a moment, we can just be there. But it, it takes practice over time. And this is a, from the Dalai Lama. I love this, this, this line talking about his own development of compassion. He says, um, I come from the northeastern part of Tibet. Usually people from that area are quite short-tempered. So if I get angry, I can use this as an excuse. When I was 15 or 20, I was quite short-tempered. But through Buddhist training and through difficult experiences, I've been able to improve my mental stability. Difficulties, difficult experiences are very good training for the mind. They help us develop a kind of inner determination. Whenever I speak about the importance of compassion and love, people ask me, what is the method for developing them? It's not easy. I don't think there's any particular package or method that enables you to develop these qualities instantaneously. You can't just press a button and wait for them to appear. I know many people expect things like this from a Dalai Lama, but really, all I have to offer is my own experience. Through training, we can develop compassion. And today, compared with 20 or 30 years ago, my mental stability is much better. Of course, irritation still arises sometimes, but it quickly disappears, and heated agitation is almost never there. Through training, we can change. So it's a comfort to know that the Dalai Lama was once a short-tempered guy. We can change. We can practice. With the compassion... It is a Brahma-vihara, it's a divine abode, it's something to, to think about that it's not, oh, I don't want to open up to suffering, it's a sublime state to feel our caring, just to feel that capacity that we have of caring. And the alternative that I relate to uh, from may you be free of suffering, that's the classic line, the one that I find helpful is I care about your suffering. It's simply feeling that caring. So when we do this, we can just do this now. Think of somebody who is having a, um, a hard time. Okay? And see if you can keep your heart open to the fact that that's part of life. And this person is having a hard time. And have an image of them. And just send them the thought I care about your suffering. I care about your suffering. Not fixing it, not taking it away, but just simply caring. And feel what it's like to care. And have a sense that they can feel your caring. This is a wholesome state. I care. I care about your suffering. Okay, you can open your eyes. So when you're seeing suffering around you, instead of shrinking back from it, just get in touch. See if you can find an inner strength and just be there and feel that heart being touched and the fact that you care. 
Okay, the third of these Brahma Viharas is joy, mudita, or what's usually called sympathetic joy. That is joy in the joy of others. Okay. I came across this quote from Montaigne, the French philosopher. There's something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortune of our friends. That's often how it is, you know. Because we have this idea, if they're happy, there's a little bit less for me. You know, there's like a, this misperception of a quota of happiness. But that's not how it works, is it? You know, it's not like if somebody comes into a room and they're filled with anger, it means there's less for you, right? <laughs> You can pick that up, right? (laughs) You might as well pick up the happiness, too. And you can. You can tune into it if you think, ah, here's this this being who's carrying around happiness as a fountain of happiness, and there's a little bit more happiness for us all to participate in. As the Dalai Lama says, you know, if you can start tuning into the happiness of others as a source of your own happiness, you up your chances of happiness by six billion to one. (laughs) The um, quality of joy sometimes is seen to be uh, um, not a very Buddhist state, although it is a factor of enlightenment. But to really let yourself feel the joy and beauty of life this is a very skillful thing. I want to read this uh, passage from Ajahn Sumedho, who we've uh, mentioned before. Just lest you think that you're not allowed to enjoy the beauty in life. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. (laughs) That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and goodness of things. They delight us, and in them we find joy. That is mudita. So with mudita, you focus on someone who is uh, having a lot of happiness in their life, good experience. Somebody who you care for, that can be helpful, okay? A child, it's easy to feel mudita. But you might think of somebody who's going through a particularly good phase in their life, and we'll just go through this uh, for a moment, okay? Bring someone to mind who's having a, a really good phase and see them in their shining hour and then say these phrases, splashing them with the words. 
May your happiness continue and may your happiness grow. May your happiness continue and may it grow. You might see them even smiling more and feeling more joyful. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. And feel how good it feels to wish that for someone. This is the joy of mudita. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. And now I'll just mention the last of these, which is equanimity, upekka. Okay, and you probably have noticed by now we have four buildings that are named, you know. It's interesting to go on a retreat and say, oh, I'm in joy this retreat. <clears throat> Upeka, equanimity, is really the ground that holds all the others. Okay? Equanimity is a certain kind of balance of mind that doesn't get lost in exhilaration when the joy becomes intense, that doesn't get lost in the suffering when you open up with compassion, that can hold it all. And it's rooted in an understanding of karma, that everything has its own journey. All of life goes through its own journey. And in that, we don't have to try to fix or control or keep somebody's journey from unfolding as it is. You know, we can do our part, but we can only do so much. And equanimity is rooted in that fact that it's not up to us to make someone's journey different than it is. And so the, the words for equanimity, for the equanimity meditation are, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, whoa, okay. Seems a little cool, huh? <laughs> but actually, when it's rooted in really a caring heart, it's very freeing. Equanimity, the near enemy of equanimity is apathy, indifference. Equanimity cares, but it simply knows and understands there is karma unfolding that's not within our power to, uh, to control or change. And it's very, very freeing. And I'll just share, um, before we, we do this last practice and close, one story for my, myself where I was doing this equanimity practice. And um, I was putting each person, uh, I was putting different people in front of me as I was saying the, uh, the phrases, you know, I put my wife in front, you are heir to your karma, and really just telling her the good news and putting my friends and, uh, in, you are heir to your karma, and each one, it was like, yeah, this is really how it is, and it's very freeing. And then I thought of my son, who was nine at the time, and he got in the seat in front. And when I started to 
say that, it was a, at first a different story. You are heir to your karma. And I had all of these images of the various nightmares that a parent can imagine for their child from drugs or accidents or illness. And one after another was like clockwork orange, you know, sitting, <laughs> oh, oh. and I'd say, you're heir to your karma. Your happiness, unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And over the course of time, I just got it. That as much as, as I love him, and I love him dearly, I can only do so much, and then my task is to just let him have his own life unfolding. And it's been a very powerful uh, aspect of my relationship with him. You know, and now he's 14, so things are, this is where it really is put to the test. You know? <laughs> we'll see. But at some point, you can, ex- you can get, you can understand deeply that there is a balance of mind that wishes well, that really cares, that really feels the joy for someone else, but has to let them go. So we'll, uh, we'll do this one as we, we end. Just think of somebody in your life who you want to practice this equanimity. And send them this news. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. See if you can feel the freedom of letting go of allowing them to just live their own journey, being there for them, caring about them, but finding a balance. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Okay, you can open your eyes. So with all of these Brahma-viharas, the good news is that they can be developed, developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And when they're experienced, the best way to (coughs) increase wholesome states when they've arisen is to be really present for them and let yourself feel the wholesomeness, feel the goodness, feel the caring, feel the joy, feel the love without taking ownership of it, feel the wholesomeness and that's how it gets strengthened. Developing wholesome states and increasing wholesome states. And this is the last words about wholesomeness. The perfume of sandalwood, the Buddha says, rose bay or jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds.
feel the wholesomeness in your life as it expresses itself in all these forms. We'll just sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on May 26, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.